You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast with Ken Corsini. Educating, inspiring, and connecting you to real estate deals. And now, your host, Ken Corsini. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with The Deal Farm. On today's Best Deal Ever episode, I am joined by Tom Caffarella. Tom's actually the co-founder of Ocean City Development, a real estate investment company based out of Boston, Massachusetts. He was actually a formerly a CPA, but loved real estate, eventually jumped into real estate full-time, has flipped over 500 properties in the last five years. And the reason he's able to do that is because he's got his lead generation for motivated sellers dialed in. He's got all sorts of cool techniques, processes, systems. In fact, I picked his brain for like 30 minutes before we even jumped on this podcast. So I am super excited to introduce him to you guys. So Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ken, for having me on. Hey, glad to have you on, man. I can't wait to dive into this interview because you are sort of on the cutting edge of finding motivated sellers, which is so relevant right now if you're a real estate investor. Um, but before we dive into that, you know, you're a big player up in the Boston area. I would love to know how you got started. How did you even get into real estate? Yeah, so um, growing up, my grandfather was actually um, a landlord in the in the Boston area, and he was the only person that I knew that didn't have to be at any place at any one given time. He was financially free. Um, and I always wanted to kind of emulate him and get into real estate, but every single person that I ever met discouraged me from doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, I ended up going to college, um, and I, uh, became an accountant. I became a CPA and I started working for a big firm, uh, out of college as a CPA. And the second that I basically got to my desk, I knew it was a mistake. <laughs> That's funny. If you're an entrepreneur, you know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, man. It was torture. And so I would literally get to work, sit there, and just literally read about real estate investing <laughs> every single second that I was at my job. And so I, I, I did that for about a year. And then one day I got to work and um, you know they pulled me into the office. And they actually asked if I was a real estate investor on the side. Oh, no. So um, I wasn't at the time, which is the funny thing. But I literally was just spending half of my time, you know, on on blogs and listening to podcasts and, you know, webinars and stuff like that. And um, bottom line is I got fired. Oh, no. Were they monitoring your computer or somebody was watching what you were doing, it sounds like? You know, I I think... I probably I wasn't being as discreet about it as, you know, I, I probably could have been. But at the end of the day, I couldn't hide it. It was it was basically just such a bad fit for me. Um, you know, I always tell people that, you know, I felt like it was worse than being in jail because <laughs> at, at least when you're in jail, you can have some, you know, I, you know, you can read a book that you might want to read or you can kind of move around, do whatever you want. But I was literally in a room for 12 hours a day, just literally going through Excel spreadsheets. And I thought that everybody else hated it as well. And I'd actually look for people in the office that, you know, I'd be like, you know, how are we doing this? But most <laughs> of the people that I talked to, they loved it. So, um, 
anyway, so I got I got fired and um, I was you know, this was 10 years ago at this point. I was 24 years old and I had no bills. Um, you know, I had had nothing that I had to pay for. So I figured if I was going to make a run at being a real estate investor, I had to do it, you know, before I had kids. And, you know, now 10 years later, I have two kids. I have another one on the way. And I'm so thankful that I did it. I, you know, I, I paid my dues when I was when I was younger. So now I've set up my business to be successful today. Smart. smart. It's funny. I did the same thing. I, I waited to have kids until after I had started the business. You kind of take your big risk. Make sure that it works and then have your family. Not necessarily that that's what people have to do before they take a risk, but I was sort of in that same boat. It seemed to make sense at the time. Yeah, not at all. I mean, you can you can get into this business at any age. Um, but, you know, I was just a little bit probably more risk averse than the average person. And for me, you know, I do have a little bit of that accountant nature. So I wanted to make sure that everything I did was calculated. Mm-hmm. But 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 anyone can jump to this business really at any age. And the great thing about real estate is that, you know, someone can make a lot of money by working hard within a very short period of time. Sure. Absolutely. So what did, what did that look like for you when you, you got fired? Did you immediately go into real estate? Yeah. So I was really, really lucky. So they fired me pretty much the day that the market crashed. Wow. And (laughs) so I was really lucky because you could just at that time go online and go on the MLS and whatever city you wanted to buy a property in at a discount, you could just click a couple buttons, renovate the property and sell it for a substantial profit. And um, I didn't realize that that wasn't the way that real estate was always going to be. So from about 2007 to about 2013, you know, we just kept buying properties on the MLS renovating them, making a good amount of money, and it was just so easy. Mm-hmm. And then, Trust me, I remember those days. It's funny because your story is very similar to mine. I mean, I remember, man, this is easy. You just jump on the MLS, find a good deal, and fix it and sell it. And I was the it, same. That's what I thought it was. I thought real estate investing was that easy. And it was that easy. Yeah. Um, really, you know, the hard part at that time for me was raising capital. Yeah. But um, – but so I, I did that for five, six years. And then I remember all of a sudden one day, because I used to buy a lot of HUD homes. Yep, so did we. And so I remember one day waking up, there were five pages of HUD homes in the areas that I like to buy properties in. And one day I woke up and there was one page of HUD homes. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that there was still the same amount of investors bidding on those properties. So it went from me being able to make a really good margin on every deal that I did to literally almost making nothing on every deal that I did. Hmm. And so we went through about a period, about a year period where we almost made nothing on every deal that we did. And it got so bad to the point where I actually almost considered getting out of real estate because I just couldn't see any way to make the business profitable. Hmm. But, um, you know, I kept reading online and hearing other people that were getting off market deals and and I knew that if I was gonna have a chance to survive, I needed to figure out the marketing solution in order to get people to sell me properties at a discount that were not listed online and didn't have competition from every other investor in the market. Yep. Yeah. Well, all of us had to make that shift because it's the same thing. Every investor that was 
in the space was picking off deals left and right fairly easily. And then one day it started to dry up and I was in the same boat. It's like, okay, we got to crack the code for finding off-market deals. And so it's funny, everybody sort of pivoted at the same time into off-market, I feel like. Yeah, oh, definitely. And um, the, the problem for me, I mean, I hadn't been through the cycle before. I didn't really know that that was going to have to happen. Once I figured out it did have to happen, I had no idea which method to actually use. So, you know, like I, I never had a mentor or anything like that, which – in hindsight was a mistake, but so, you know, I'd read online, I'd go on bigger pockets, I'd go on blogs and I try to figure out what people would say was working. And everywhere I went, there was a different answer. And so, you know, I'd read about literally probably 50 to a hundred different uh, lead generation mechanisms. And because I didn't know which ones worked and because I was desperate to stay in the business. Now, keep in mind that my biggest fear in life is going back to being an accountant. <laughs> That's a good motivator. And it, it probably sounds a little bit funny, but I still in my head right now, I still have that fear that someday I'm going to have to go back and, and work that job, even though it's not even remotely realistic at this point, <laughs> that still is in the back of my head. Wow. So, um, so not knowing what to do to generate motivated seller leads I tried all 50 to 100 of the methods and, you know, some of them worked really well. Some of them worked OK and some of them didn't work at all. Mm -hmm. And so I basically just learned by trial and error which ones worked and which ones didn't. So this was a process of a couple of years, I guess, of you just doing trial and error and probably getting a couple and then not getting and kind of spitting and sputtering until you figured out what worked. Exactly. So, you know, I was trying pretty much everything under the sun. And as I got more results from one method, I'd put more money and time and effort into it. And then as I wasn't getting results from other methods, I stopped doing them. Yeah. Um, How long would you test though? Because that's always a question. I mean, it's like you can't just drop postcards once and say it didn't work. No. I So I, I really thoroughly tested probably every method. And I can go into detail on any method. I, I've spent at least probably a year trying out every single thing I could think of. <laughs> and some of them, you know, it's funny, some of them I go back to and I try again. Because, you know, sometimes you think in your head, well, maybe I didn't do it the right way. Maybe if I tweak this or I tweak that, I can get better results. So it's always a trial and error process. And, you know, you mentioned mailing postcards. Even just mailing postcards has changed over the last few years. Sure. Um, because a lot of people have, have gotten into that space and it's become more competitive and you need to get more creative and everything like that. But but the one one mistake I did make in the early on was that when I was marketing to motivated sellers, I had no idea who I should be reaching. So um, what I recommend to to anybody who's trying to to market to motivated sellers is you really need need to create like an avatar of who the most likely person is to sell to you. And depending on what type of property that is, um, it's going to be a different type of person. So, hmm. for example, like for me, I mean, uh, do you mind saying how old you are? I'm, I'm 40, man. 40 and proud. Okay. And I'm 34. So 34 and 40-year-old guys don't sell to investors. They, they just don't. Um, it's very, very unlikely. So, so we know that there's a certain age 
um, of sellers that tend to sell to investors. We also know, for example, that if somebody just bought their house last year, that they're probably not going to sell their house at all. Um, we also know that we don't want to uh, market to agents. So we basically make a list of all of the characteristics of the people that sell to us over and over and over again. And then we use the marketing methods that work the best. Hmm. So what do you, who do you find? What is that demographic? What is that typical avatar? Yeah, so we find that um, typically the people who sell to us are a little bit older. And so obviously it, it doesn't mean that someone who's 40 can't sell to us. It just means that they're much less likely to sell to us. Hmm. So why spend the same marketing dollars and time marketing to the 35-year-old person versus the 55-year-old person? Mm -hmm. so, so we tend to find that the people over the age of 50 tend to sell to us more frequently. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Um, they tend to have had their property a little bit longer. And there's more time for there to be potential neglect for the property. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also more equity buildup. Mm -hmm. So anytime that you are marketing to somebody, you really need to know when you talk about the avatar, you need to know what their mortgage balance is. Because if you're marketing to somebody who has a mortgage balance that's higher than what you can pay as an investor, right off the bat, you're not going to get that deal, mm -hmm. um, especially if they have equity. Um, so it, it's unlikely. And so we just build up all those characteristics of who is likely to sell to us and then exclude the people who aren't likely to sell to us. Are you looking for like length of residence in a property too? We do. So uh, again, you know, somebody who just bought their property a year ago is extremely unlikely to sell to us. Mm -hmm. And so we usually like 10 years plus, although because we've scaled up our marketing in the Boston area, We've gone a little bit more narrow. We've actually done five years at this point. But, you know, when we started, we were doing 10 years plus, and that tends to be give you a little bit uh, more likelihood of the person being willing to sell to an investor. Gotcha. So you so for your marketing, let's let's talk for a second about you're targeting these lists based on an avatar. How are you? What's your marketing look like? How are you reaching out to these people to, to find these motivated seller leads? Yeah. So before I go that go over that, can I go over some of the things that don't work very well? Absolutely. Okay. So I think these are really important because when when I go on you know websites and I hear different people, especially newer investors, talk to me about these things, um, doing the wrong thing is is going to waste a lot of time and a lot of money. So I hate when I hear people saying that bandit signs work really really well. And so we did a huge banding sign campaign in our area. And again, when I say these marketing methods don't work, I'm not saying that you can't get a deal from them, but that they're, the, they're not the most efficient or effective ways to generate leads. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, Ken. The last time you were pulled up at a red light, what did you, what did you look at? Where were your eyes? Uh, I do look at the signs actually. Do you? Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm so, well, I'm curious because we, we do bandit signs on occasion. So I'm always curious what other people are putting up and how they're phrasing it. And it's more me just being curious because I've put them up before. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're an anomaly, but where do you think most of the world is looking when they pull up at a red light? They're probably looking at their phone, honestly. They're, they're looking at their phone. So yeah. outdoor media in general is dying because 
you know, even if you're at a bus stop waiting and you have all the time in the world to look around and see bandit signs and see billboards, the eyes aren't there anymore. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, as you know, you put up a bandit sign, it gets taken down a day later. That's true. Or you so, get some nasty call from code enforcement. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a constant battle. And and so you're constantly battling to get a sign up for a day that nobody's going to look at. Okay? And and I think the reason why bandit signs are promoted so heavily is because it's something that anybody can do. So it's very easy for a coach to say, hey, put up a bunch of bandit signs, but in reality, it's not worth your time. Yeah. Um, the other method that, that I you know, get really frustrated with is people who rely on others to supply them with deals. So you know, people who are looking for wholesalers to sell them deals or real estate agents to sell them deals, not that those people can't bring you a deal, but you have no control over whether or not they do. And so I, spent, I see a lot of newer investors trying to form relationships with real estate agents that most likely will never bring them a deal in their entire career. Hmm. Again, you can definitely get deals from real estate agents, but again, I don't believe it's the most effective and efficient way in the beginning when you're starting out. Yeah, right. Well, and it's funny. A lot of people try to get in this space inexpensively, and all they want to do is remarket another wholesaler's deal. And I, it's right. the stacking like wholesalers on top of deals just drives me up the wall. Well, you know, there's there's limited margins as there is. So the more people that are involved in the deal, the lower it's going to get. Right. Uh, the, the less margin there's going to be. Um, another thing that I, you know, uh, kills me when I see is, is people talking about search engine optimization. Yep. And so there's a lot of products out there that, you know, sell you, you know, a thousand dollar product, how to, you know, get on page one of Google. Um for starters, getting on page one of Google for the key, the right keywords takes a long time and it takes a lot of effort. Yep. And I'm actually on the, the front page for a lot of those key phrases and I barely get any leads. Hmm. And so if you search, you know, sell my house fast Boston, you know, I get a couple leads a month, but it took me so much time and so much effort to get up there. And so if you're a newer investor trying to get started and you put all your time, effort and energy into SEO, you're you're going to be out of the business before you even get your first lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the long game. That's like, and like you said, you're not even getting that many leads if you're dumping yep. a ton of money into it. It's going to take years and years before that pays off. Yeah. So, um, you know, and and then going to you know the stuff that does work. So, so the stuff that does work that I find is the the internet marketing that that you can pay for right out of the gate. Sure. Um, that but you have to do it right. So. When when I first started um, trying to do internet marketing for my business, I did it all myself. And you know my biggest issue when it comes to doing anything technical is I'm a really technical person. So in my mind, I thought on day one, well, I can run internet ads. I can figure it out. I'm smart enough. And what I found out was that you really need somebody super specialized in order to do it right. So when I first started doing stuff like Google pay-per-click or Facebook ads or Bing or Yahoo or anything like that, my cost per lead was $800 per lead. Oh my gosh. Holy cow. And obviously you can't make, you can't make money at those numbers. So I tried to do it myself and it didn't work. My cost per lead was too high. 
So I actually thought that it didn't work at all. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to investors across the country and everybody was saying that, that the Internet marketing stuff works. You can get a reliable cost per lead. So I hired somebody. It still didn't work. And it took me to get to my third person that manages all of my Internet accounts to actually get somebody who knew how to generate leads, motivated seller leads for a cost per lead that I can actually make money on. Hmm. And, and to, what are some of the some of the avenues you use to get that for pay per click? You took a Facebook, Google, Bing. What what have you found that's worked? Yeah, definitely Google and Facebook. Um, those are the two two big ones. The other ones are important as well because you can get a pretty good cost per lead on Bing and Yahoo and even the ads that just kind of follow people around after they see your initial ad. Mm -hmm. So so those are the big ones, and it's really important that if you are going to spend money on internet marketing, you know, that you're getting a cost per lead in this market of somewhere between $100 and $200 per lead, yeah. which which may seem high or low depending upon whether you've ever um, spent money on internet marketing, but, but that's actually on the low side. Yeah, that's not bad. It's funny because we, we did uh... – pay-per-click for a while we've kind of done it off and on hired a consultant yep. and our market atlanta was so dang competitive that we were like 250 a lead which was mm -hmm. a little higher than i was comfortable with so but we've actually we're about to bring on another consultant who says we can get him down in the hundred dollar range which to me that's that's fantastic if i can get 100 bucks a lead online and those online leads are to me they're even better because they're looking for you exactly versus the other way around and them just getting a postcard and being like oh, i'll see what it's about so they're, exactly. they're good leads. Exactly. So the cost, I found the cost per lead, you know, you're talking about mailing. The cost per lead is a little bit higher and the person is like, oh, you want to make me an offer? Go ahead. Blow me away. You're contacting me. That's right. Yep. It's a different so, dynamic. Yeah, it's a different dynamic. So so for me, when I, you know, anyone that I work with or consult with that's a newer agent, that's where I start them in the beginning because those are going to be the most motivated sellers and you can control your cost per lead a lot more than any of the outbound messages, outbound methods where you're sending messages to somebody else. Right. Um, but the other two that work really well, so there's only three things in my head that, that I've found are really efficient and effective. The second one is cold calling. And, um, you know, like I, we were kind of talking a little bit before we jumped on the podcast, it's really important that if you are going to do cold calling, that you do it right or it's not going to be effective. Mm -hmm. um, so w was the dialer that you were talking about using before the podcast Mojo? No, I mean, I know about Mojo. It seems like that's sort of the, the nicer of the dialers. I think we we have uh, implemented IQ dial, but we're still testing it. We haven't 100% settled on one. Are you familiar with IQ dial? I'm not. So I've only used Mojo. Okay. Um, and I love Mojo. I mean, using a dialer is super critical when you cold call. Uh, for a number of reasons. The first is that if you use Mojo, you're literally calling three people at once. Mm -hmm. And so the, the hardest thing about cold calling is actually to get somebody to pick up the phone. And so the reason why a dialer is so important is that because it, it literally fishes for the first person to pick up a phone. So it's dialing three lines at once, and then somebody picks up the phone, and then you have them live. Mm-hmm. Um, the other reason why using a dialer is so effective is that when a voicemail picks up, instead of you leaving the same voicemail over and over and over again, 
you can literally push a button and the voicemail gets dropped. Yeah, what so, do you do? I'm curious. Are you leaving voicemails or not? Or just kind of tagging it, hey, I need to call this number again? No, we're leaving voicemails because with Mojo, it what, once the person's uh, voicemail picks up, you click a button and it leaves whatever me- pre-recorded message you want it to leave. Okay. So there's really no advantage to not leaving it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this. I mean, you don't get a ton of callbacks. Sure. You know, you, you really need to get the person live on the phone, um, which is why it's so important that if you are going to cold call that you get really good cell phone records. And so, you know, there's a the, the, probably the best and, you know, least expensive way to do that is through a company called Cold Realty Resource. How do you spell and that? So, Cold Realty Real- Resource? Um, C-O-L-E. Cold Realty Resource. Yep. Interesting. And, yeah. And so um, for for the money, I believe it's about $1,000 a year. Um, they have a really good database. And it's, it's fairly, you know, inexpensive. But the difference between getting a good phone number and a bad phone number literally can double um, the amount of people that you talk to. And we talked uh, before about, you know, what the contact rate should be. And you should be, if you're getting good phone numbers, you should be talking to about 10% of the people um, that you call. Hmm. And if you can consistently hit 10%, you're going to reach enough people to get your message out there to, to book one-on-one appointments with sellers. Now, let me ask you this. The database that you're calling, are you creating the database first and then appending numbers, or are you buying lists of phone numbers? So I'm definitely appending. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, quote-unquote, you know, motivated seller lists like notice of defaults. Not, not that we won't hit notice of defaults, but... The problem with hitting lists that get resold to every single other investor in the market is that everyone else is hitting those lists. Mm-hmm. So what we do instead, we kind of do it the reverse way. We make a database of the properties that we want to buy, and then we market to those people. So the mistake I made early on was that I would hit a notice of default list where somebody was behind on their mortgage, and I'd mail them, and I'd call them. and I get the lead in and it would be a fur house I didn't even want to buy. <laughs> Interesting. So, so, you know, not every notice of default is going to be a property. For example, in, in the greater Boston area, I really don't like buying condos. Um, the profit margin on them on average is much lower, but 25 to 35% of the NODs are condos. So in the beginning I was marketing to a bunch of people who I would get the lead and I didn't really want to even buy their house to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So you're having better luck with like your kind of your targeted older, been in the house for a little while, decent mortgage balance, append phone numbers to that and then just pound that list. I mean, how big is that list for you in the Boston area? It can't be that big. <laughs> it's huge. So it's- I, 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 yeah, I, I have about 700,000 uh, people who, whose house I would want to buy in the greater Boston area. Um, we go pretty wide. I mean, we, we do about a hundred fix and flips a year. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of volume and we, we're willing to travel about an hour radius from, uh, from Boston. Okay. So we hit, you know, we hit people, you know, the, the, one of the most important things when it comes to marketing is that you're, you're touching people over and over 
and over again. And so, you know, you've talked a little bit about mailing because, you know, mailing is something that definitely works. Um, but you need to you need to mail people over and over and over again. And um, when you're mailing today, there's a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. So if you are going to mail, you definitely need to make sure that what you're sending stands out from your competition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you don't you don't want to send like the, the exterior of the letter to me is the most important because that determines whether or not it's going to get opened. So the more that you can make whatever you're sending look like something that's personal, the higher your open rate is going to get. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, something that we like to do is we like to send um, a mailer in a little envelope that almost looks like um, a birthday card. Yep, yep. And, and and we put a name on the outside. So we don't put – the name of my company is Ocean City Development. We'll never put the, that name on the outside of the letter because once somebody identifies that it's a business, it's much less likely for them to open it. So we'll put our name on the outside and we'll put something again that looks like a, you know, a, a card. And once they open it, of course, you know, you want to make sure that your copy on your letter sounds really good, too. But it really is more critical, actually, to get it opened than necessarily what it says on the inside. Are you using a service like a yellow letter type service for that? So we actually do so much volume that we have a mail center in our office. Oh, very cool. So, so, you so you just have people do, come in and do it? We have somebody full-time that works the mailroom. <laughs> Man, very cool. Yeah, so um, obviously that's not something that you want to do out of the gate. Um, you know, the machines are very expensive, but it's very easy to find uh, mail mail service providers that, that will do it for you and do it for you at a reasonable price. Um, we don't save that much money by keeping it in-house. We just like the control factor. Yeah, right. When you're getting yep. it, are you putting it on a yellow letter or are you putting it on just a white sheet of paper? What does it look like? It looks like a note. So it looks like a handwritten note um, on a, a memo size piece of paper. Oh, interesting. Are they handwritten or are they still printed? They look handwritten, but they are printed. Okay, interesting. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's only one variation. I mean, that's not the. That's not necessarily. There's a bunch of different ways that you can get creative. I mean, I've even heard of people doing like priority mail. Um, because when you send something priority mail, now you know 100% it's going to get opened. Um, the only negative to that is just that the cost goes way up. And and so I think there's a balance between it, you know, you guaranteeing that it's open um, versus like sending something that's so generic that you know it's going to look like you know, a junk mail. Well, how do you know that 100% priority mail is going to get open? Well, for example, if you send it like um, with a signature request. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. yeah. Again, if, if you Certified. were, if, you, yeah. if there's a property that you really, really want for it for whatever reason, I mean, you can spend enough money to, to make sure that that, that happens. Right. Uh, obviously, if, if it's something that you want that much, you know, you might actually just be better off door knocking on it. But, um, the problem with door knocking, even though door knocking works really well, is that it's just hard to scale. Yeah. So I actually had somebody that was door knocking full time for me. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, in the greater Boston area, weather becomes such an issue. Yes. Yep. And so and so door knocking is super effective. But 
it's really hard to get people to do that consistently for you. And so even though that worked well for me, I ended up, you know, trashing it because it was just hard for me to manage it. You know, it's funny because we're, we're in the process of imp- implementing door knocking as well because there's so many good in-town neighborhoods that are gentrifying that it actually makes sense to just have so many canvassed areas. It's funny because we just had this exact same conversation this week about the, the weather issue. You know, we're interviewing mm-hmm. people now and the, their first question is, well, what happens if it rains for three days straight? I don't work. Yep. Well, I, don't yep. know. I don't know. We haven't figured that out yet. So for sure – if you can manage the people. So it's, it's really going to take somebody that's focusing a lot of effort on managing them. Yeah. And so when I used to do it, I would uh, on the, um, on every door that they would, uh, door knock on, we would also leave a note on the door Yep. and to track that the person was actually doing it. I would make them take a picture Yep. and, uh, on, uh, the program that we used was Evernote. And so that they would take a picture on Evernote. And so at the end of the day, I would have someone review that they hit the number of doors that we that we knew that they should be hitting. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. There's another program I've used before. We were actually going to sign. I can't think of it off the top of my head that actually geo tracks. You take the picture, it geo tags it for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then you can you can like log in and see all the pictures they've taken. We've done that with bandit signs. When somebody's put up a bandit sign, we know where they've put them and then geo tags it for us. Yeah, I'm sure that there's there's a lot more efficient ways to do it than even I was doing it. And like I said, it worked. Yeah. Um, but I just had a difficult time managing it. I almost feel like you need someone who spends 10 hours a week just managing that process for it to really be effective. I know what it's called. Simple Crew. SimpleCrew.com, oh. if you've ever heard okay. of that. Um, let me ask you this. So when they were door knocking, obviously they're they're coming across vacant houses. Did you have like sort of the back office to research the the vacant houses that they find? No, because those those houses, if they were on our list, they were getting targeted anyways. Okay. Um, I'm not a big fan of going over the the top on a property that's either vacant or quote unquote needs a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Because what I found is that because the property needs a lot of work or some other marker that you can see physically doesn't necessarily make that person more motivated to sell. Yeah. Um, vacant homes, maybe. Um, but, but, um, properties that need a lot of work, I've never really found a correlation and I'm not a big fan of doing a ton of research on any one individual property. I'm, I'm more of the mindset of blanket everybody and you're going to get results instead of worrying about like, let's build a database of the, hundred houses that we think are most likely to sell no hit 10,000 houses and you're going to find the ones that want to sell motivated anyways yeah that's interesting well let's talk for a second about once you do get a lead because obviously if you're calling and sending out as many letters as you are you're getting a lot of leads in your door how are you how are you working those leads how are you doing appointments how are you getting sales yeah so when a lead comes in um it automatically goes into my crm um, I, you, you know, everybody likes to talk about which CRM is the best. I think right. at the end of the day, it's kind of a pointless conversation. It's, it's really the CRM that you use, Yeah. but you do need to use a CRM. Yeah. And so, um, I've lost tons of deals by not using a CRM because I didn't know who I should be calling on what day. Um, but, but anytime that a lead comes in, it goes automatically into our CRM and then it gets called by my inside sales agent. So I have a full-time inside sales agent that immediately when a lead comes in, um, they are getting called. 
And if they book an appointment, the appointment goes on one of my real estate agents' calendars. So I have a few real estate I, – I have a 125-person real estate brokerage, and um, I have real estate agents that are trained specifically for acquisitions, and um, they they go out, they negotiate with the seller and try to get me a deal on the house if it's the right fit for the seller. And so when we go into any seller appointment, at the end of the day, it needs to be the right fit for the seller. Mm-hmm. And so most people, it doesn't make sense for them to sell to a motivated seller. Um, so when we go in there, um, we, we first try to see if it really does make sense for them to sell to an investor. Um, do they understand that they're going to probably get less money for their house? It, are the ben- Do the benefits outweigh you know the negative of a lower price? And so we've always found that if we give people really good advice, um, we tend to get the deal if it is a deal. So that's interesting. So your strategy is to not necessarily just send an acquisition person that's just for the investment arm. You send a real estate agent that probably approaches it as a, hey, we want to buy your house, but if it doesn't work, maybe I'll just list it for you. Is that sort of the approach? Yeah, they get some listings out of it. I mean – it really just depends on the person's situation. Um, you know, when you're talking about generating a motivated seller lead, you know, you get everything from people who think that you're going to pay double double the value because you're a developer and you're you're going to be developing the whole neighborhood, all you know, all the way to people who you know really need to sell their houses quickly and everything in between. So when we go in, I mean, at the end of the day, we look at it like we're consultants and we're we're trying to to help them make the best decision for their home. And sometimes that's to not sell their house. Sometimes it's to sell to an investor. Sometimes it's to list with an agent. Sometimes it's, you know, to rent their property. And so, you know, we go in there, we try to figure out what they need and what makes the most sense for them. And again, just try to help them. And we find that that gets us the best results, you know, on top of the fact that we're helping the people that we're meeting. It's interesting. So it's not really a, I need to get in there and get this acquisition. It's more of a consultative approach, it sounds like. Well, when somebody's really motivated to sell their property to an investor, um, then that it becomes very evident that that's what they want. And and so so if 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 that's the case, then then we help serve that need. How do you train your agents on that? I mean, you've just said here here are all the different tools in your toolbox. Let me show you how to use them. Yeah, so anytime that an agent gets onboarded, I mean, there's a there's a big training process to it because acquisitions are obviously a lot different than just traditional listings. Right. So there's a, a big ramp up period, but the good thing about real estate agents is that they already know how to negotiate, um, they know how to do contracts, um, they know how to build rapport. So those are the important things. The technical aspect of a fix and flip or a buy and hold or an investment deal can be can be trained easier you know teaching somebody that doesn't know how to build rapport to build rapport is a lot harder yeah that makes sense what so what are you how are you splitting it what's the what's your payment structure for an agent that goes out there yeah so um we actually just pay them so if if they get the deal we just pay them a flat fee okay and so um you know we want to make sure that that it's it's worthwhile for them to to do the investment deals for us. So we pay them a flat fee, and and then obviously if if they get a listing, then then they get a listing. But and you have like a referral fee back to you for some for the listing. 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm the brokerage owner, so there's just a, a 50-50 split. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. And are you making appointments for specific agents, or are you making appointments and then letting agents claim those appointments? No, we, we make appointments for specific agents, and it's based on geography and experience and, you know, who's really the best fit for acquisitions. There's a lot of people who who don't want to do acquisitions. Um, you know, they don't want to go into a rundown home that needs ton of, tons of work and, you know, maybe they like to, to have luxury type listings and stuff like that. So, you know, it's it, it becomes pretty clear in the beginning whether or not somebody might be interested and might be a good fit. And it's the same thing, you know, we're trying to make sure at every point within our business that everything is the right fit for everybody. So for a seller, is it the right fit to sell to us? For an agent, is it the right type of appointment for them to take? Yeah. And so, um, you know, we found that if, if we can get the right people in the right places, um, it works for, for all the parties. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you've got it dialed in, man. It sounds like uh, very we're, we're good systems. We're trying. So, um, you know, the biggest issue for me over the last couple of years is is we've been stagnant. So, you know, I told you that we do we did about 100 deals a year for the past few years. But the problem is, so I already have the database of every person whose house I want to buy. And we're hitting them over the head over and over and over again with cold calling, mailers, putting ads up in front of them on social media and Google and so the issue that I have, and you know, I'm 34 years old, I don't want a flat business. Yeah. So I knew that I needed to expand in order to grow my business. So what I decided to do um, at the end of last year is partner with investors around the country that, that kind of wanted to do what I'm doing in the Boston area in other markets. And so what we do is we provide them because we know we have the lead generation down. So so we'll actually generate the leads and then um, do a profit sharing split with agents. Uh, sorry, with investors who are interested in working with us. And as of today, we are in 26 counties across the U.S. Wow, that's awesome. What are yep. you finding? So in your market and other markets, how much do you tell people to anticipate spending per purchase? So we found that it takes at least five to seven thousand dollars, depending on the market. OK. Interesting. Um, if you are in like you're, you're in a market that's probably similar to mine. Yeah. Um, so you're probably going to be a little bit on the higher side. Um, but, you know, I've worked with people in markets like I, I have a guy in Panama City, Florida. And the competition there is just so much smaller. And so, you know, we're, we're lower or on more like the $5,000 side um, versus, you know, the seven or eight, you know, $1,000 side. Gotcha. Well, so what does your split look like? If you were to partner with somebody, how, how much do they keep? How much do you keep? So the way that we do it, it's, it's just a flat fee that they pay us of $3,000. So whether or not they wholesale a deal or they fix and flip a deal or they decide to purchase the property. Um, it's just a flat uh, $3,000 fee. And so what we try to do, if we can, I mean, my goal is to get every person in the counties that we're working with um, to do somewhere between 20 and 30 deals a year over the course of a couple year period. 
And so they pay for, do they pay then for all the marketing up front? You're kind of fulfilling it, but they're paying for it. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. So you're, you've sort of got the expertise to do it. And then, and then there's just a split on the back end. That's very cool. That's, I mean, for yeah. somebody that doesn't have the infrastructure in place or the know-how, I mean, that's a quick, easy way. It's less yeah. than a wholesale fee to somebody. Absolutely. And so we also provide them with, with training and coaching as well. Okay. So, you know, training on the systems on, on how to, how to work the leads. We give them access to our CRM. Um, we provide them with training on what to do before the appointments, what to do after the appointments, what to do on the appointments, how to, how to build a cash buyers list, all that kind of stuff. So, so I've worked with, with people everywhere from literally somebody who's never done a deal before all the way to people who do 20 or 30 deals a year already, but are kind of stuck mm-hmm. and, you know, they want to take their business to the next level. Killer. Well, I got to ask, since uh, you're doing 100 deals a year for the last so many years, is there one deal in particular, either in your market or somebody else's market, that stands out to you as your best deal ever? Yeah, I know my best deal ever for sure. Um, it happened about a year ago. And so the Boston market over the past two or three years has kind of exploded. Um, we tend to bubble pretty hard when when the market's good. And so there was a, a six-family property in the greater Boston area, and we were planning on converting that deal into condos. And when we ran the numbers initially, we weren't even sure if it was a great deal. And um, we paid um, $1.2 million for the property. Mm-hmm. And so after we closed on the deal, I started looking at the comps, and we we were projecting that after a year-long condo conversion, if everything went perfect, um, we'd make a few hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. But when I started to look at the comps, I started to realize that things were selling for about $1.5 million. Um, so basically, it looked like on paper that – um, I could actually just sell the deal without even doing the project and make the same amount of money. <laughs> nice. And so we put it on the market, and that's exactly what happened. We actually ended up getting a little bit more than what I thought my anticipated sales price would be. And so, you know, at the end of the day, to be completely honest with you, this there was nothing special about this deal at all. Um, I think, you know, over the course of your real estate investing career, um, sometimes you get lucky and, and sometimes you have a little bit of bad luck, but it all evens out in the end. Yeah. And Absolutely. so like it was, it was nothing that I necessarily did on this deal to make more money. And, and I've, I've also had deals where I thought I was going to make a ton and then there was something that I missed or the market changed. And then I ended up making a lot less. I can attest to that. It's funny it's that sometimes it's the deals you think you're going to make a home run on that fizzle out, and it's the, the dark horses you didn't even anticipate doing well that just went so smooth that you make a bunch of money on them. It's funny how you just sometimes can't predict what's going to be the, the big payouts. But but you do know the harder you work, the, the luckier you get. Yeah, that is true. The more unicorns you find. Yeah, so so you're gonna get you're gonna get some some great deals. You're gonna get some bad deals, but but on average, you know your luck kind of evens out. And so, um, I, I mean, I know we talked a lot about lead generation and, um, so I didn't go into as much detail as we could in a short period of time, but, um, 
if you go on my website directly, you can actually learn more specifically about each one of these specific methods. Mm -hmm. So if you go to um, www.learnhowtogetdiscountedproperties.com, again, that's www.learnhowtogetdiscountedproperties.com, um, there's a lot more in-depth information and um Actually, after you, it's a webinar, and after you, if you watch the webinar, there's actually um, a call to action at the end where if you want to schedule a one on one call with me, um, one hour long, you can do that as well. Man, that's fantastic. Learn how to get discountedproperties.com. It's a long URL, but it's a it's a descriptive one, so we'll make sure <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure we put it in our show notes in case you guys forget. But definitely check it out. Tom, this is a ton of good information. I almost feel like you and I should just jump on another uh, podcast at some point in the future because I feel like we could dive even deeper than we did today. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, any one of the marketing methods we covered today could be an hour-long conversation. Yeah. So I'd be happy to jump back on at any point. Well, and I may even pick your brain after we're done because you've got <laughs> lots of good information that's relevant to anybody that's in the real estate investing space. Anybody that's trying to get deals for motivated sellers – this is the good, 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 good stuff. Tom, thanks. thanks so much for coming to the show. This is a really good interview. All right. Thank you, Ken. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Hey, folks, it's Ken again, and I want to talk to you for just a quick second about becoming a private lender with our company, Georgia Residential Partners. If you've got money right now sitting on the sidelines, maybe it's in a bank account earning less than 1%, or maybe it's in the stock market and you're worried about where the stock market is headed, you might want to consider becoming a private lender with our company. Where you might be getting 1% to 2% on a CD or a money market account right now, when you become a private lender with us, you're actually well into the double digits in terms of return on investment. Again, if you've got money that's not working for you right now, it's sitting on the sidelines and you want to get it into investment that's safe, that's passive, and has the opportunity to get you well into the double digits, please reach out to me. You can actually contact us through our website at dealfarm.net. Go to the Contact Us page. It goes right into my inbox and I will reply and set up a time to talk. Thanks so much for listening to The Deal Farm. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.